0: Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. There has been a lot of controversy over the last little while in regards to political parties and how political parties manage discipline not only with their members, but with their elected officials as well. We have been able to put together a... A panel that I never would have uh, I never would have expected it's a wonderful surprise um, we have three people who have all been MLAs they have all experienced the inside culture of different parties very very closely and what I think is particularly compelling about the conversation that we're going to have today is these three people uh, we've, we've got the full political spectrum here it's 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 about as ex- polarized as an extreme as you can get, but they have all agreed to come on the show to talk about the problem of how political parties manage party discipline. So in no particular order, we are extremely excited to welcome to the show Robin Luff, Stephanie McLean, and Derek Fildebrand. Thank you guys so much for being willing to, to join us today. should be fun.
1: Thanks for having us. Yep, absolutely.
0: So, if it's okay, I'd like to start with Robin, because of the three of you, your, your concerns with the party were probably the most um, publicized. Uh, so, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, when you left the NDP, it wasn't by your choice. You were, you were kind of doing a bit of a whistleblowing thing, and things went the way they did. So, can you tell, tell that story just a little bit, and what inspired you to speak out in the way that you did?
1: Sure. Um, so it's a long story. Um, but I mean, I guess obviously I was elected in 2015 along with Steph and Derek, actually, we were all new in 2015. Um, and I was elected as an NDP MLA and I was so excited to be elected to the first new Democrat government Alberta had ever had. And I was so excited about all the things that we were going to do. I remember, you know, a Dinner very early on I sat with Steph and somebody like all the things we talked about that we were going to do all these things we were going to you know stop paying for private schools and we were going to like in put in proportional representation and we were going to just like all these things that we had planned for um and very quickly I realized that like that was not how it was going to go so what I had imagined as a very sort of collaborative process of Uh, talking to constituents, coming up with ideas that we thought were good ideas, putting forward ideas for legislation, having caucus meetings where we debated ideas for what was going to be put forward as legislation, Um, you know, having a choice of how to vote in the legislature. Like, these were all things that I was hoping were going to happen because I ran for the NDP because they always said they were going to govern differently, right? Like, that was sort of what I expected when I was running, and maybe that was naive of me. I don't know, but, you know, that was what I had hoped for. And instead of that, um, there was a lot of sort of shadow oversight. So, you know, I call what I experienced bullying, although many people sort of took offense at that word, but like what bullying is, is it's like a repeated and targeted offensive that prevents people from doing their job appropriately, or for, that makes them feel bad. And like that absolutely happened to me. Um, you know, I had bills that I had put a lot of work in that I had been told were all right at the very last minute, sort of pulled and told, nope, you can't do that. We're going to have to do something different. I had member statements that I had written, pulled like minutes before I was supposed to give them and told that the content of them wasn't appropriate. I, uh, you know, was yelled at in meetings when I spoke up about what I felt was like not the appropriate course of action at a committee meeting, you know, cause I went against what had been like previously decided in the like pre-meeting or the pre-pre-meeting or whatever meeting that happened. Um, and I did that in that one meeting just to see, I was curious. I was like, if I actually just go off script here, what's gonna happen? And what happened was I got massively yelled at and then not two weeks later was pulled off of that committee. And like, when I said like, you've clearly pulled me off this committee because of of what happened. They were like, oh, no, 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 no. We just like, we need you on another committee. We're just like moving you around. Um, And then it sort of got to the point where like people were uh, were having member statements taken away. Like, so the the house leadership decides, you know, what's going on. Um, And I really, it just got to a point. And I guess what really triggered it was like, I had a conversation. When all these things were happening, I was upset. And I spoke to the member who was the whip or the assistant whip at the time. And he was like, Oh, well, you should go talk to so-and-so like an upper member of the premier's support staff. He's just, you know, he was like, he always makes me feel better when I'm feeling challenged with whatever. And so I went to talk to this guy and he just like mansplained at me that like all of my issues were not real issues and that I should just be happy to be here. And like, basically tried to use high level intellectual arguments to make me feel like I wasn't smart and I didn't know what I was talking about and like made me cry in a meeting. And uh, so about a week after that meeting, so he did decidedly did not make me feel better. And like, it really made me question the Whip's judgment. I was like, what kind of conversation are you having with this guy to like, that makes you feel better about something? (laughs) Um, And then a week later I had a meeting with the premier um, and she basically just dismissed like all of my concerns. I was just like, you know, this has happened and this has happened, and she's like, yeah, that's just sort of how it is. Like we're under so much pressure that like we have to do things this way. And I was like, well, this is clearly not going to get any better. And so it was at that point where I realized that it was not going to get any better, and I was not able to serve, and I felt I wasn't able to serve my constituents appropriately. There were things that I had been fighting for. I'd been fighting for law changes with regard to mobile home parks that were like what I saw as really easy fixes. And that as far as I could tell, had no reason that they weren't being getting done. I was fighting for um, some form of like rent regulation, which is something that people have been talking to me about for years. And like just there was zero movement on that and there wasn't going to be. And so I, I really felt that I wasn't able to represent my constituents as well as I should be. And so at that point, when um, oh, I also had a conversation with the chief of one of the premier's chiefs of staff at the time, who again did not reassure me and did not make me feel that, like, because I wrote a letter outlining all of these concerns, I sent the letter to the premier and the premier's chief of staff. And the premier's chief of staff had several conversations with me, and at no point in any of those conversations did I feel that things were going to get fixed or dealt with. They were very smug, and. Did not make me feel like things were going to get better and so i was like you know what i'm not going to be able to live with myself if like i don't say something about this and so you know so i wrote a letter and i sent it to all the media <laughs> and uh, and things went downhill pretty fast from there i got uh i made a joke a little while ago that i didn't even get invited to my own like caucus expulsion meeting like at least the guys in the ucp got like invited to be voted out of caucus like they didn't even invite me to come get voted out of caucus they just had a meeting without me and expelled me from caucus. So.
0: Now, did they ever give you a reason? Like, was there a verbalized reason or was it like one of those like, ah, oh, you're just not a team player? What was the, did they ever give you a rationale for, hey, we voted you out of caucus and enjoy Siberia, as I believe it's called?
1: I think it was that they weren't able to trust me anymore. Like I was untrustworthy, which I guess, you know, was fair. Um, like I aired all of my grievances publicly, which makes you, untrustworthy as a caucus member um but I mean it was very brief like I got sent an email that was like you know sorry we voted to get rid of you um and it was not unexpected I I didn't expect to walk out of that happening um with my seat in my party still secure but you know I hoped I hoped what I hoped was that it would spark a conversation within caucus. um, And like, I had hoped more people would like stand up publicly. Like it was disappointing that more people didn't. I had people text me and be like, oh, you were very brave. But like, I didn't have anyone who was willing to like come out against the machinery of the party. And I understand, I understand. Like, because there is so much pressure and there is so much fear about what the consequences will be. Like, and if you wanna continue your political career obviously I'm not in politics anymore, right? If you had any desire to continue your political career, coming out would have been suicide, so nobody did. But, um, yeah, I mean, Karen McPherson did, but she had already chosen to cross the floor, right? So, yeah.
0: Can I try to paraphrase sort of what you just said there? Because I have questions. Um, the, the Coles notes of that seems to be, you had concerns about how you were being treated within the party you followed the appropriate steps, those concerns were dismissed, you went public and you knew that going public was bad uh, and that it would likely cost you your role within the party because that sort of thing isn't tolerated and you were right. Am Am I summing that up correctly?
1: That seems about right, Nate, yep. That doesn't
0: sound very good. It was not. Yeah, no, I don't imagine so. Um, yeah, we're, we're going to come back to 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 you in a few minutes. I'm gonna I'm gonna light the fire, um, Derek. I would I would. I mean, your your situation was a little bit different uh, because if I'm remembering correctly, you actually resigned from UCP caucus after there was a series of uh, uh, mishaps. Let's fix. call them. Shitty fix. Um What's that? Shitty things. Yeah, sure. That works too. What was your experience with party discipline on the conservative side? Because one of the things that I'm curious about is, does is this a problem just with the NDP, where if you step out of line, you're going to get spanked? Or is this something that you experienced both, because you were Wild Rose before UCP, is this something that you experienced with the Wild Rose? Is it something you experienced with the UCP? What are your, What are your thoughts?
2: It's absolutely not limited to the ndp uh, every party likes to portray itself as better than the others the wild rose in particular was a bit of a unique beast because because it is a populist party that very much fashions itself uh, fetishizes the grassroots uh in ways that really most other political parties that that gain any kind of mainstream traction don't um, so i was elected first in 2015 under the wild rose banner and became the finance critic I think I was a bit young for a job like that. I was only 29. Um, But, you know, coming from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, it was was a natural fit. But I was a bit, I was a bit young, I think, to be in politics. Um, But I I came in, I was a very different, uh, I I was in alignment with certainly a large faction of the party's membership and voter base as a libertarian. But I was really the only explicit libertarian in the caucus. So there was an ideological difference from a lot of others in the caucus and certainly from the leadership, uh, the leadership, Brian Jean is more of a conventional conservative, you know, he had served in the Harper government, uh, you know, he didn't really hold most positions he would hold would be more or less within the general confines of what you'd see in a, in a kind of a mainstream conservative. Um, I, I came in with some very different views, um, was much more of a hard autonomist about Alberta's place in Canada. I support drug legalization uh, in some circumstances and de- decriminalization at the very least in almost all others, support legalizing prostitution, uh, not p- policy positions you'd associate with a rural right-wing member of a political party. Um, so, you know, I, I came in holding a lot of different positions. I, um, even though I held a position of somewhat, of somewhat leadership in the party's caucus, being finance critic, I regularly broke ranks on quite a few votes. Um, uh, With all due respect to my more leftward colleagues on here, I I, I was out to set a record for most votes against the NDP in history. And so I would, um, you know, on on certain votes where it was ordered that it would be too controversial to vote against the government bill or motion, I would still regularly break ranks and vote against the government, even if my party would otherwise vote with it, on all sorts of things that I considered libertarian, things that get under my skin, like... You know, they, um, the government um, passed legislation around, you know, requiring mandatory helmets on ATVs. I think you have a right to be stupid, not wear a helmet. So, you know, sometimes there are just little things like that that aren't giant issues. But I, you know, I, I would regularly break ranks from my party, mostly on issues where my party voted with the government. Most people don't understand this. I think roughly a majority of votes in the legislature... The, all the parties vote together it 's often unanimous, uh, and there's good reason for that people see where there's conflict because those will be i 'm in the news business we don 't report when everyone agrees because that's boring. no one cares about it um, but there would be some things where it's generally you know your party leadership says oh, this is too controversial we 're going to vote with the government on this one and i 'd say ah, i don't think so and so these weren 't huge things, but it started to kind of show a little bit of daylight between me and the leadership of the party um I, um, I I kind of began to, I, I I think wrongly became viewed as a bit of a threat to the leadership that was there. I was kind of the young aggressive one in the caucus and um, the leadership that was there with Brian Jean, I think became suspicious that I may have had leadership ambitions. I didn't. And uh, they made a first attempt to get rid of me, um, which failed pretty spectacularly. They tried to kick me out, uh, but it, it it blew up spectacularly. There was a revolt in the party's grassroots. And uh, I was never even technically out of the caucus. Uh, They announced I was out, but they announced that on a Friday and by Monday I was officially back, but I'd never been officially out. So they never even sent a letter to the speaker. They never had a vote on it. Um, But that definitely set up some very big dividing lines in the caucus. At that point it became uh, very much a war between me and the leader of the Wild Rose at that time, Brian Jean. And we began fighting essentially an internal civil war That revolved around the question of um you know should we merge with the progressive conservatives to form what would eventually become the united conservative party and that became an internal internal civil war and i took a leadership role on the opposing side from the leadership on that during it um that's what that means for extremely strained relations with the leader as we're waging essentially an internal civil war um and as you do with Political enemies, you you kind of put together a list, and uh, they put together a list on me. I, I certainly made some errors, but you know uh, some errors. Things can be worse than they really seem if if they're spun correctly, and uh, errors I had made were aired by my own side to try and uh, damage me politically. So after the United Conservative Party was formed, uh, I left the United Conservative Party caucus. I was only UCP MLA for like a few weeks, I think, or maybe a, maybe a month and a half. So I, I don't even ever really consider myself having been a UCP MLA. We never had a caucus meeting other than to select the interim leader. Uh, I really only consider myself having really served with the Wild Rose. Um, but uh, the guy I was backing for the leadership at the time, uh, God forgive me, was uh, Jason Kenney. And um, we sat down after he was elected leader and he said, uh, that was all a bunch of crap. Uh, we know it was a smear from the other side because you're backing me. Uh, we want you back to the caucus. But at that point, there had been a redistribution of the constituency map in Alberta, and my constituency had been dissolved in five different ridings. But the part of the riding where I was based, Strathmore, got merged with Chestermere, which unfortunately happened to be represented by another UCP MLA. And uh, that MLA happened to be one of only two women in the entire official opposition caucus, one of only two visible minorities. And Jason wow. Kenney more or less said, look, the politics of it, of this are pretty shitty uh you are you and we have to we have to protect one of our only women and minorities and uh we want you back but you have to run in brooks and medicine hat and uh i had a newborn daughter at the time and i was not prepared to move my family all the way to medicine hat or brooks uh just wasn't something in the cards so jason kenny and i more or less uh parted ways at that time um so that, look, there's, there's different ways party discipline gets exercised, and one of the greatest, both directly and indirectly, I think is actually the nomination process. And the nomination process is, is pretty unique in Canada and applies federally and in all the provinces because of the, the nature of what we consider a political party in Canada, where they're private corporations, they're normally not-for-profit societies, and they're not... Um, you know, there's a lot of flaws in the American system, but one of the areas I think they really got it right is the very nature of their political party system and the primary system. I'll get into a bit bit more because I'm going to give them background here, but um, here, the leader decides who was a candidate and who is not. Uh, and there and different parties have different- Pardon.
1: wasn't always like that, though.
2: Uh, well, different parties have different rules around it. The, the Wild Rose had- a lot more grassroots control. But ultimately, if the leader really wants their way, they're always going to get it. Some political parties, like the most extreme would be the CAC in uh, Quebec, most hilariously named political party. And um, there the leader is, the the party was literally just created as a cult of personality around the leader, Francois Legault. What he says is policy is policy of the party. What he said, he just appoints the candidates. That's the most extreme end. But even the Wild Rose, which was pretty decentralized, pretty grassroots, if the leader doesn't want you to be a candidate, and they really work hard enough, at the end of the day, you're not going to be the candidate, even in the most grassroots example. You contrast that with the United States, where political parties are not private corporations or not-for-profit societies. They're almost public institutions, in a sense. And then, so you'd get guys like libertarians like me, who would run as a Republican, probably like Ron Paul. Ron Paul was... He voted against the Iraq War, he voted against he fought the war on drugs, he fought the surveillance state, forgot fought the Patriot Act stuff that really pissed off Republicans, mainstream Republican conservatives. But he constantly he was able to stay a Republican because of the primary system. And he could just keep on getting nominated as a Republican in his South Texas district. On the other hand, you have Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, like, if he was in Canada, well, he couldn't run as a liberal. He would have to start a new little party, you know, something like the NDP. Um, you know, he, he, he's more extreme than the center-left, mainstream kind of liberal left, um, and, and so he, he wouldn't be allowed to run as a liberal in Canada. He would he would have to run for a smaller party, and that's and we'll get maybe get into the two-party system in the states. But I think actually the reason is two parties because there's much more diversity who can get nominated and keep a nomination in those parties. Mitt Romney like Mitt Romney hates Donald Trump's guts but Mitt Romney is still the senator from uh, Utah because his nomination doesn't rely on the nominal leader of the party Donald Trump or the head of the Republican National Committee he gets nominated by registered Republicans in his state and you know that's, that's that's a very long way of coming around to saying uh my issue was um I was ultimately not allowed to run for the nomination in the constituency that uh, I partially represented before redistribution. I was told I just wasn't allowed to run in my own riding and and the exercise of that nomination power can purge a party of people who are problems for the leader or the leadership cadre and and it can be used as a huge threat to keep people in line. If you want to keep you want to keep your spot you need to keep your nomination you want to keep your nomination you got to stay on the side of the leader. And you just look at something like, if you're, a, if you're a federal conservative in Alberta, anywhere outside of downtown Edmonton, well, large parts of Edmonton and downtown Calgary, you have a guaranteed job for life as long as you keep your nomination. And generally, if you don't piss off the leader, you're going to keep your nomination and, it, and it's a job for life. And it's, so it's a huge incentive in Canada never to rock the boat. And that's why inside of parties, we don't see like a Tea Party on the right or an Occupy Wall Street uh, or Green New Deal stuff on the left within political parties, able to legitimately challenge the power structures within parties because anybody who gets out of line, they're purged. And you're, you're a pissed off conservative in Alberta? Well, go start a new party and join Maxine Bernier.
0: It's interesting that you bring up the nomination piece because we certainly did see that play out in part of your old constituency with the situation with Leela here and her board and all of the the shenanigans because that's the A B Polly word uh, that that played out there. So it's that's a that's a very interesting perspective, Stephanie. Hmm. Thank you so much for waiting.
3: <laughs> I was hoping now, to the last, so this is perfect.
0: <laughs> you are a bit. Different than the other two panelists, because you completed your term with the NDP. No, I didn't. We <laughs> oh, didn't. I up. Okay,
3: again. well, I mean, it depends on how you define that. I left early. I left before my turn term, term was over. But yeah. I, 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 was NDP the whole way through. So yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what I meant. Sorry. Um, now, what was it when it comes to party discipline, when it comes to some of these, uh, I'm going to go ahead and use the word toxic approaches to dealing with people involved in the machinery of things. What was your experience? Is is, is what Derek and Robin saying fitting? I mean, I've noticed you nodding.
3: I Yeah, it, it is fitting. Um, and, and, you know, I... Uh, when, I, when I decided that I wasn't going to run again um, and uh, I announced that, um, I carefully crafted in conjunction with the Premier's office um, a public statement to go out as to why I wasn't running again. Um, and that carefully crafted reason was one that um, I felt confident would ensure that I wouldn't be taking any political heat. So, and I think that's important, um, and it goes to um, what Ro- something Robin said earlier when she said, you know, she stepped out publicly saying that she um, was experiencing this toxicity and bullying, and was dismayed that she found herself standing alone, more or less. And I, I felt terrible that she was standing alone, and and I, like Robin, I'm I'm sorry. And I, you know, I, I think if we had had this conversation even two years ago, I'd probably be bawling my eyes out right now saying that to you um, because, I, you know, I, I- I appreciate it. Thanks. Um, you know, I, I, I know exactly what she was talking about and I, and I let her stand out there on her own, um, but I was afraid. Um, and I think um, parties um, use fear as a method of control. Um, And in telling um, my story, I think it starts right at the very beginning in the 2015 election. During the course of the election, you know, it it was, it was insane what was happening and and unexpected, but my constituency, I had been working in there about a year before the election and I had trained up volunteers. I had found volunteers, friends of friends of friends, university students, all these people, um, and had this excellent team of door knockers, which was like absolutely key. And then the 2015 election rolls around and about, I don't know, a week into the election, I can't get any of my volunteers to show up for me because they were all at Joe CC's office. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? You know, these were my people. And, you know, so we're having conversations with party organizers and I'm having conversations with my volunteers. Why aren't you coming to, to me? Why are you going to Joe? Uh, we were told to go to Joe's. We were told to go to Joe. And, and the volunteers are following the marching orders from the party. And everybody saw him as a beachhead because again, nobody expected us to take government. Um, and so they thought, you know, we just need this one seat in Calgary. And this was the message, despite the fact that the party definitely had data to show that that was not the case. It was not just going to be one seat. Um, they nevertheless were directing all of the volunteers across the city to Joe. And they had talented volunteers, you know, making signs and stuffing envelopes.
1: have a quick, because uh, like I was on my, Joe's constituency was right next to mine. And I remember very distinctly a day where I was like out pounding a sign on the street, like pounding a giant, like eight by 11 that someone had asked for by myself and like Joe's team drove by with like a truck full of like people and we're like, good job, Robin. And like, kept going. <laughs> Yeah.
3: so sorry. So, yeah, no, no, it's okay. So I was running a full-time law practice, which I, you know, was trying to tap dance holding that together and not getting reported to the law society, right? Um, and, and campaign full time. And my husband basically stopped showing up to his uh, summer job. He was in school at the time and he was running my campaign office for no money. And, uh, and I, I call up the party. I can't remember who the guy was, but I was not the only one that had a really negative experience with him. Um, he was the contact. And I remember saying to him like, look, I'm sick. I've got every kind of yeast infection in the world. Sorry, TMI. Um, like my, my immune system is shot right now. I'm so stressed. I'm working all of these hours. My husband is working for free. All of my volunteers have been sent to Joe. And this guy was like, well, what are you doing? You're just sitting on your ass. Why don't you have anybody if, you know, if your campaign is so great? why?" And he literally used the words, what are you doing sitting on your ass? And I was like, excuse me? And he was like, yeah, well, your husband, what is he doing? Just sitting on his ass all day there? I was so offended. And I was like, (laughs) what I had learned in my by-election campaign that I'd lost previously was that the only power the candidate holds during the election is their nomination papers and those being sent into Elections Alberta. Because once those papers are sent into Elections Alberta, your name is on that ballot no matter what. You can't pull it off you can hold that back until the last possible second. And I did. And I, I threatened everybody involved in my campaign. Those nomination papers are not going in until I say so. And it was about 24 hours before those papers were supposed to go in that I'm having this conversation with this guy. And I haven't sent them in yet because I've been mad at the party that kept saying, we'll send you people, we'll do this. We'll do all these false promises that never materialized. And uh, and I I say to him, you know what? I'm not sending in my nomination papers. You need like what, like hundred signatures or something. Like, good luck getting another candidate. And I hang up on him. And then the phone calls start coming in, like the guy who was Jerry, who was like running the, the campaign, he's calling my campaign manager husband, um, you know, everybody's calling me, I'm just ignoring my phone. And so my husband ends up like mediating this. <laughs> and um, at the end of the day, I, uh, I ended up having this phone call with, you know, the top brass and uh, running the campaign and it was late, it was nighttime. And uh, there was a couple of people in my car with me having this private conversation. And I I said to them, I want one volunteer. I literally had a name. I was like, I want this one guy. That's all I want you to release. Cause I had said to this guy, come, come volunteer for me. I'll pay you, I'll pay more than Joe's paying you. No, he was not allowed to go. He was told, absolutely, you cannot go. And so I'm saying to the party brass, I'm like, this is absolutely ridiculous. You say that you support women, you say that you support young people, you say that you support minority groups, and then when push comes to shove, you're sending all of my people, all of my resources, and you won't release any of them to me, to an old white guy. And they had nothing to say, but at the end of, at the, end of the call, they were like, will you promise us to send in your papers? <laughs> And I was like, I was like, I will not send in those papers until I see this one guy in my office. I need to physically see him here, and unless he is physically here, you're not getting my papers. And that was the end of the call. The guy showed up. <laughs> they got me the guy, and then they released me a couple of more people, and and it, we ended up having a really good team at the end of the day. But I had to hold them hostage, and then we got we got elected and the news gets released about Deb Drieger, that she had you know all of this stuff on social media blah 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 and we were hearing stuff internally right like the rumor mill was turning about what was going to happen to Deb and we had all seen this stuff and and you know my heart broke for her i'm like she's such a young young woman um I just happened to be fortunate that I'm like, you know, six years older than her or something or five years. I can't remember. And so my, you know, pictures are actual hard copy photos. I mean, people are not going to be able to say that going forward. And I was like, this is ultimately a nothing burger. When you look at what the youth are putting on social media today, I'm like this, she's just the first one. And so I started calling up other other MLAs I'm like we need to stand behind Deb she can't get kicked out of caucus this is absurd blah 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 make a phone call to so-and-so I'm handing out phone numbers I'm like getting people riled up and then I get a phone call I think it might have even I can't remember who it was from anyway somebody high up saying you got to stop this and I'm like okay (laughs) like it was like very serious so I, I take my marching orders and Deb gets kicked out of caucus right The day of the cabinet swearing in, I get called into a one-on-one meeting with Rachel um, and her chief of staff. And I'm thinking, what is this meeting for? Like the this was this was the day in the summer where it was out on the front steps of the legislature, like the the big hurrah. And before it, probably about an hour before that, I'm called into a meeting with Rachel. And I'm thinking to myself, is this how this works? Am I Am I getting put into cabinet? Is this when I find out? And the conversation, I was sitting with Rachel and she tells me that um, I'm not in cabinet and that she's not having this kind of meeting with anyone else. Um, I'm the only person that she's having a one-on-one meeting with to tell them that they're not in cabinet and that I'm not in cabinet because of what I did on the campaign, holding them hostage and because of Deb Drever because I spoke out about it. And um, she told me that there would be other opportunities and possible future cabinet appointments, and that, you know, she had considered me for cabinet and had high hopes for me. But because of those two things, I was not in cabinet. And when I reflect on that, I, I really believe that that conversation was, um, was her way of trying to get me to become compliant. And in the most interesting turn of events, she then put me in charge, partly, of compliance and appointed me deputy whip, which, I mean, makes perfect sense. (laughs) So I then was tasked with calling people up when their social media was not correct, telling Robin Luff to calm down and she had to vote in favor of legislation Um, and, you know, threatening people with things like, well, we'll move your seats into the far corner. We'll take away your office in the legislature. You won't get trips. You won't get committees, you know, uh, all kinds of stuff like that. Right. Um, And, when myself and the whip were like, hey, what does this job do? We called up a whip. I can't even remember who in another, it might've been federal, the federal NDP whip. And we're like, how do you do this job? Like, there's no job description around it. So you're like, what do, what do we do? And it was described to us basically as you need to be the center of the rumor mill. You need to be the center of the gossip. You want everyone coming to you. And so that's how the political parties work on rumor and gossip and trading on that and trading on, on the favoritism that you get for being loyal to the leader by way of telling the secrets of your colleagues and telling the secrets of you know, the, the people involved in the party to the leader to show them I'm loyal to you and to gain favoritism. Um, and then uh, I did a good job of being an enforcer uh, and showed that I was, you know, loyal and could enforce marching orders and take them. And I kind of knew that that's what this was. It was a test of whether or not I could do that. And then I was appointed minister three days before I had my child. And... Um, during the course of um, my time as minister, um, I, I was you know, not a, a wallflower um, you know, in, in meetings. I, I spoke my mind, um, but it was weird. It's like when I had walked in to one of the first meetings, it, it was like the people who were already there were quite deflated. Um, And over time, those meetings and, you know, I'm not I'm I'm just sort of describing the the tone of the environment as opposed to anything specific that was said. So I believe I'm not breaking any cabinet confidences. But over time, it just it became the type of thing where people were barely listening in those meetings. It was just like, yeah, whatever the leader says, yeah, vote in uh, in alignment because you knew that it didn't matter uh, you know, you you could say something, and if the leader particularly liked it, then maybe it would change something. But it, really, your voice it didn't matter. Um, what whatever came to that table had been pre decided by staff and the premier before it even got there. And so then Robin's experience of being on committees, it's like whether it's caucus committees or whatever, well, it's pre decided before it got to cabinet, and then it's pre decided before, and then it goes to caucus. So it's been pre-pre-pre-decided before it even gets to the, the caucus members. Um, and it's, it's made clear to you, if you have an issue, you bring it up to somebody, um, that you know, you're going to have a meeting with someone, and it's not going to be a very nice meeting. And I was probably called at least once a month into a meeting with the Premier's Chief of Staff, subsequent Chiefs of Staff, and I probably cried in every one of those meetings. And the one that stands out the most for me, um, this was, I think my son was under a year old. I was called into meeting with the chief of staff. Premier wants me to talk to you. Okay. Um, you're not spending enough time in your constituency. On, on what basis? Okay. Well, you know, uh, I'm sure you haven't knocked enough doors. Well, if you looked at the metrics, we've knocked all of the doors twice well, what about fundraising? You know, there's no way. And I said, I've actually, I know that I've fundraised more than CC, which is absurd. He's the finance minister. Um, There's no way. There's no way. You didn't look at these metrics before you called me in here to give me shit about them? Like, oh, I'm sure. I'm just sure it's not. Okay. Well, so why aren't you spending every spare second outside of session in your constituency? And I said, well, childcare. Is a huge issue for me, and he said, "Well, why? I mean, are you just being really picky with where you're leaving your kid?" And I was like, "I'm—I don't know if you know this, but there's a childcare crisis in Alberta, and it's not like I have extra access to it. And furthermore, most of them don't take children until they're 18 months old, and my kid's not even 18 months old. And he's like, "Well, I don't—wait, you just can't find somebody to leave him with?" And I'm crying. I'm like what the, like, um, and this came on the back of Rachel being, I think she was pissed at me. I mean, you never see it directly from her. Um, but I think she was pissed at me because there was this announcement in Calgary and it was on the Friday. And this was a Thursday that I'm, uh, I'm told that I need to be at this announcement in Calgary on Friday. And I, my kid's sick, he was sick. And, um, my mom was working. Um, my husband was working. Nobody could look after him. Nobody wants to look after a sick kid. So I'm like, I I can't go. I can't drive him for three hours to Calgary and and bring him with me. And I had like the deputy chief of staff, the chief of staff to the premier. I had my own staff calling me. I probably had like 10 different people call me. Like it, it feels harassing, telling me that I need to be there and that my kid being sick does not matter. And it even got to the point where the chief of staff was calling other staffers that they knew had children to see if they would look after my kid. And then when they found out that my kid was sick, they were like, well, no, I don't want to look after a sick kid. I'm like, I freaking already told you people this, right? At the end of the day, my husband was like, I'll just, I'll just risk it. I'll, I'll take off work. Um, I, you know, It's been a lot, but I'll, I'll take it. And I was like, okay. So I show up after all of this Rachel doesn't say a word to me. Her EA gives me like daggers. I'm like, hi, it's like, won't talk to me, like just mean girl stuff. And at the end of the day, I was just a meat wall at that. I didn't even have any speaking lines. Like I was just one of three people. So my attendance was fairly irrelevant. And yet I was harassed to show up there. And and I and I did. And there was no, there was no. Gratefulness that I had bent over backwards to make it happen, even though it was a huge challenge for me. So, you know, despite all of this, like forward thinking, you know, holding up onesies for my child behind the scenes, it was he was a problem, and um, if it took time away from the premier's um, priorities, I was a problem. Um, and and you know, it got to the point. Um, where uh, I, I started to feel um, really paranoid around the the staff. So in um, the NDP, and, and this is the case, as far as I can gather, I've looked into this a little bit in other political parties, where um, the staff in the minister's office is not chosen by the minister. They're assigned to the minister. And... Um, and I realized my staff was there not to support me, but to watch me, to report on me, um, because they might find out that I was at X, Y, or Z, and then um, I end up getting a call from the premier's office. So I, I'm like, it's, it's a direct line. You, know, you can see that this is why you're getting in, in trouble. And, um, and the staff would be protected far and above the MLAs. Every single time. I had some really um really uh difficult staff that I would not have chosen that um were not working out. Um and despite multiple conversations, emails, complaints, I got to the point where I literally packed up the box in my office and of my stuff, and I said I'm not coming back until this staff is gone. Um and and when one of those staff ended up lying about something and I, and I caught it later um, claiming that my office was in disarray and that that's why they were there. And they had been sent in to clean it up. I was like, what is this, this crap? No, you were the problem. Um, I went to the deputy chief of staff and um, apparently the, the marching, you know, this, this story had come from her down the pipe. Other ministers were telling me this, public servants were telling me that this story had, had gone on. And I confronted her and she just lied to me. And I was like, that's it, I, I'm done. Um, and, and that was really, it was just the last straw. It wasn't the biggest straw, but it was the last straw for me. Um, but, you know, staff in, in my office that were really problematic, like one of my staff members um, was, uh, didn't show up for work. And then another staffer saw this individual on the elevator on St. Patrick's Day, just drunk out of their mind. And like, that's why they didn't show up to work and left another staff member holding the bag. Like, that's just unacceptable in any workplace. But this person was protected because they walk the premier's dog when she's out of town. You know, she's friends with, with Lou and Rachel. Um, and, you know, I'd never even been to Rachel's house. <laughs> like, that's why the staff are, are protected because they can be fired, you know? Um, so, so, you know, they have, they, they're, they're more easily controlled than the MLAs.
0: I have to ask, I'm sorry to jump in here, but the, the person who asked you why you were being picky about where you left your kids, did they have kids? Yeah, they did. Older kids. Yeah. Okay. Cause I mean, I've got, I've got kids myself and when I'm looking for childcare, it's not just look for the biggest cardboard box that's nailed to the ground. That
3: was the expectation, but I I a hundred percent believe that this person was just following their marching orders. This person was not um, coming up with this on their own.
2: Sorry, Robin, did you have a kid during your time there? I think you did. So right?
1: the thing that, I regret the most or not one the thing I regret the most. I regret a lot of things, but the thing, the thing um, I, so I was elected. I had a 10 month old when I was elected. Um, I took her with me all through my election. Like she was, yeah, I baby slung her. She's in all the pictures. Um, but when I got elected, my husband took the bullet. He like quit his job and stayed home to look after our kids. So like, I never had to bring my baby to the ledge, but like, I wish I did. I wish I did, because I could have maybe helped with some of the issues that came later, because I heard that story from other parents with young children, that they were not being treated. I know. Uh,
2: I like, there wasn't a lot of babies that took place there. It was a much younger legislature than usual. I was the youngest uh, of all the opposition, all the opposition MLA's. I was the youngest by almost a decade. So it was a huge gap from for, for me with the others. But uh, you know, I, I had a baby at the same time, but I I remember just being so damn grateful that I was the man. I, you know, there's mm-hmm. much greater demands on a mother than there is on a father. And I, I you know, I was
1: pump at- one time and like, I have a very distinct memory of like hand pumping in my office between like legislature sittings because like, I, otherwise, like yeah. milk was going to spurt out of me. So I, oh.
2: I can't even imagine. <laughs> I, I, I've got another, i got ai have got a, I've got a seven week old right now as well. And but I, I cannot I, I'm really for it is just so much easier for the guy. But uh, but, you know, there's demands in politics um, that like it's there's not really Matt Leaf in an elected position. So it's like I, I just I remember watching Stephanie just thinking I'm lucky. I'm just so lucky that it's it's easier for us. And, and there's a lot to do for the dad. But, you know, it's, it's just a lot tougher for the women.
0: I gotta ask, and, and there's there's sort of two pieces that I wanna wanna get into. The first one is, and this is gonna be more for Stephanie and, and Robin, but don't worry, Derek. I'm gonna give you some more time in just a sec. Um, one of the things that has been raised over the last week in particular, but it's, I mean, it goes back, and that's that's a big thing that I think is important to be highlighted. Is these are not new. Um, claims, accusations, I don't know what the, the word is to not get sued, so I'll just nebulize it. Um, but a lot of concerns raised around misogyny inside of the the parties. As the two women who served as MLAs, did you ever feel like you were being treated differently than the the male MLAs or the, the male counterparts? Because, I mean... Our DMs are fascinating on the on the, the slowest of days and some of the stories that we've we've been told about behavior that male NDP MLAs engaged in and got away with by all objective measure, um, they're very bad. Um, and they don't seem to have gotten any, any consequences for those. Um, but y- you didn't have child care for a day, Stephanie, and, and you got in trouble for that. So, like... I, I, am I misinterpreting it? Am I reading it wrong? What, what are your takes on that?
1: Robin? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I get asked this question a lot, right? And, and I always find it difficult to answer because from my point of view, I didn't necessarily feel that I was targeted in any way for being a woman. Uh, my mistreat, I felt like my mistreatment within the caucus was because I deigned to not do exactly as I was told or I wanted to not do exactly as I was told. And I know that there were men within the caucus who I talked to who had similar concerns that I did and who were treated in similar ways that I was. Um, That being said, like, it is possible there are uh, gendered components, like, it's much more socially acceptable for men to drink more than it is for women to. And there's alcohol at everything. Like when you're a politician, like every do you go to, there's there's alcohol. And I was really careful about what I drank in public because of what appearances are whereas I'm not sure that that same precondition exists for men. Um, and that's just societal. That's not within the NDP per se. Um, and I certainly did feel talked down to by older men regularly, but I also felt down, talked down to by women in the staff. So I don't know. I, I always say I particularly did not necessarily experience what I would say was misogyny. I experienced mistreatment. I experienced a toxic work environment, but I'm not sure that I personally would say what I experienced was misogyny. That's what I generally go with.
0: Okay, Stephanie?
3: Um, I would say that there's this problem um, and I think it's it's a lot more on the left than it is anywhere else where um, you find men going, well, I'm politically left, so therefore I am woke. And therefore, I am not a misogynist. And because I am under this banner, I am not a misogynist. And so then they believe that they don't need to scrutinize their own actions. And they believe that they are beyond reproach. Um, And so I don't think that um, the women or the men hold the men um, as accountable as they could be held for their actions, because there's just this assumption that because they are orange, <laughs> they are not misogynist. And um, I, I definitely experienced in, um, you know, and I don't think it's unique to the, the NDP, but I definitely experienced um, in caucus meetings that men were able to speak more um, get more of the airtime than than women did, um, and I, I think the probably the clearest example of that for me was um, was in the 2015 election when they sent all of my resources to a oh, white man. So
0: fair enough. I guess what the big question that I want to have is because I mean both of you in in answering that have highlighted the fact that this is a problem that is. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to use a word that's probably going to get me in trouble: endemic uh, to all of the political parties. Um, and I mean, anecdotally, I I know of a guy who got his membership revoked from a political party for for doing a, a comedy sketch. Um, so I mean, these things these things do happen. Is it fixable? Is is there a way to? I mean. <sighs> I can only imagine what it's like for somebody who is a nominated candidate for any party to hear this conversation. And I mean, I, I myself ran for political office in 2019, got my ass handed to me, thank God. But, um, you know, I, when I was running, I had these ideas of, I'm going to go and I'm going to represent my community and I'm going to stand up for my community issues. Uh, and I'm going to be a, a, a voice for my community. And I think that's a reason why a lot of people get involved in politics. And based on the stories that all three of you have shared, it's more of a, so you should shut up and do what you're told then. Um, Is that fixable? And I'll throw it to Derek first, because you've been sitting over there quiet. I love the cappuccino cup, by the way. Um, But uh,
2: I'm a uh, (laughs) latte-sipping redneck.
0: Over-caffeinated, I think, is the word we use. Over-caffeinated libertarian,
2: yeah. Um, is, it, is it fixable? Is it repairable? I guess it depends how, how fixable we mean. I mean, to be mostly fixable, no, I, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to play a bit of devil's advocate. Politics is a team sport, and uh, particularly parliamentary Westminster politics. You're coming in as a team, and I'm, even an independent has to work with their small team of staff and whatnot. Uh, it's a team sport. And and if you don't play as a team, you're probably gonna lose. And winning is a lot more fun than losing. Uh, even though I've never served on the government side, um, you know, winning your seat, winning a bunch of seats as the, as a caucus. And uh, so the the incentive there's a lot of incentives to work as a team, and and that's positive. Um, and so a lot of this is, and I don't mean to sound like a mealy mouthed Canadian splitting the difference on everything here, but it, it is finding the the right balance between operating as a cohesive team, pulling in the same direction. And, uh, but on the flip side of that same coin is, you know, everyone on that team has a lobotomy and they don't have a valid opinion of their own. They're not individuals who can think for themselves. Um, I think there are things we can do to make things better. Uh, I think the single biggest thing, as I alluded to earlier, would be an adoption of something like the primary system in the United States taking nominations out of the hands, not just of the leaders, but of party hierarchies themselves and, and, and treating, um, this is the only thing I'm ever going to advocate should not be privatized, but it should, should be nationalized. And that is political parties, political party. I, I call for the nationalization of political parties because political parties, um, they should be allowed to largely govern most of their own internal affairs, but their finances are already very heavily regulated. Uh, because there is, a, there is a public interest in having accountability around raising money and some, some transparency around spending it, even though most of that's pretty opaque, and I think that's actually fine. But nominating candidates is an absolutely massive part of the political system. If you're a conservative in Alberta, and you, and you live in rural Alberta or parts of Calgary, the general election does not matter. It is the nomination of your conservative candidate that decides who your representative is, federally or provincially. And if you are a resident in downtown Edmonton, the general election, at least provincially, does not matter. It is the nomination that selects who your representative is. But we we have this thing in Canada where we don't seem to care. We pretend we care. We say, yes, I want grassroots this, grassroots that. But anytime the hierarchy of the party comes along and puts its hand in and, and, and masses with things, decide who's allowed to run, who's not allowed to run, or, or even handpicks who it is, at the end of the day, most of the voters of that party shrug their shoulders and say, well, what am I gonna do? I can't split the vote or something. And, and they go along with it. Um, and, and I think we also overly, part, part of the team politics, but uh, we're, we're hyper-team politics in Canada. You have one candidate somewhere on, in, in, in all the parties and they'll, ha- they'll say something stupid or they'll have some stupid tweet uh, or uh, blog post, you know, you had 2012, you had a Lake of Fire candidate in the, West, in, the, in, in the Wild Rose party, and that one candidate's bad actions are tarred on everybody, and everybody owns that, and that's because we're, I think we treat it as too much of a team sport. There's an expectation right across Canada that the opinions of one crazy person apply to everybody, and regardless of how we do that, the different sides and uh, different pol- opposing political parties are always going to try and do that that and that 's kind of fair game, but the system shouldn 't be treated as that um, you know it, it, so, yes. you, so when you have like the primary system in the states you 'll have you know uh, aOC I think she 's absolutely nuts I think she 's crazy certifiable, but uh, Americans in their political system they're they're sophisticated enough to know that she was nominated by Democratic voters in her congressional district. And that just because there is someone like AOC, that does not mean that every Democrat across America shares all of her opinions. Same with, uh, you know, who's that crazy lady in South Carolina? She's like a very conspiracy theorist, uh, Republican. She was nominated by Republican voters in her district. And that doesn't necessarily mean that all the Republican candidates are the same. So I think we can get a, away from at least some, not, not all, but at least some of the gotcha of applying bad things from one candidate in a party to everybody. If it's understood that the parties don't just, this hierarchy and the leadership aren't picking everybody, but it's up to voters in a particular constituency to pick who, who that person is. And so that's, it's about broadening the franchise and changing, uh, changing the power structure. And I think part of this, uh, has been semi achieved in uh, in Ottawa in Parliament with the reform Act uh, from michael chong now that was that was brought in while harper, harper was still prime minister, but there was a funny coalition that took place. It was the coalition of the leaders, the leaders of the conservatives harper Trudeau uh, I think Mulcair at the time, maybe you sing, but I think Mulcair and uh, the whoever the block guy was at the time. The leaders were against this bill. And all the backbenchers were in favor of it because this was about hugely empowering uh, the caucuses, regular members of parliament, backbenchers and private members in general. And so that bill got watered down quite a bit. Uh, and now it's applied only a selective basis. The liberals don't even, they're suppo- legally, they're supposed to vote on it after every election. They don't even have the vote on it. So it's on the books, but it's not really there. Uh, a lot of what it did is it formalized the powers that members of parliament constitutionally already have. But have been lost over time by convention since, because the Westminster Parliament, technically the leaders should be elected by the caucus, and there's problems with that, but it empowers members of Parliament, members of the legislature to hold that leader accountable, But because leaders get their, they have a dual mandate, they get elected leader by the membership of a party, and, um, you know, in Alberta, we, we can see that that membership can bite back, but that's a very rare very, very rare circumstance. And so that dual mandate gives the leader the ability to say, well, okay, you were elected by a couple of a couple thousand people in your district, and you only have your nomination because of my good graces. So who are you to to bite back at me? Uh, I'm elected by all the members of our party. You're just some guy and you wouldn't be elected if I didn't make you a candidate anyway. Um, The Reform Act, while really watered down from as good as it could have been in its original form, still was very important you know, and it allowed uh, conservative members of parliament to topple Aaron O'Toole in like a matter of like three days. It took two years to take down Jason Kenney, at least two, two of really active internal rebellion in a party and it it was in, it created huge instability for the government, for the party, And for the province itself, because we had this protracted civil war that went on literally almost as half as long as the American civil war. Um, But in Ottawa, they did in three days. Because what they did is they kind of reformalized and reasserted some powers that MPs and MLAs do technically have, but feel that they can't really exercise because convention has changed over time because of the nature of our political parties has changed. So that's the two big things. Um, I'm not gonna say they're silver bullets that are gonna fix it all. A ton of it's cultural and and, and, I, and culture is way harder to change than rules. But in terms of what we can change, tangibly, very quickly would be reforming the way we nominate candidates, uh, both provincially and federally, uh, to, to more closely look at the American primary system and the adoption provincially of the original form of the Reform Act uh, that they passed there. I, I think those two big things are the two easiest fixes we have to at least make some significant progress on.
0: Okay. Robin, what's your reaction to that? What do you, do you see solutions? Are there, is, can things get better or are we on a downward spiral to the, the lobotomized version of, of Well, I mean,
1: I, I think if Steph, Steph knows, like I, I feel like party politics has to die, quite frankly. Like I'm a systems change person. Like the system we have in place right now doesn't work, period like Derek says, there are a lot of things that you could, that can be done in the meantime that like, I, I like his idea about the nomination process. I a hundred percent agree. The leader should sign nomination papers. We should return that to the grassroots. Um, you know, there's things like you could go to the, the UK, the three line whip, right. Where like, it's accepted that members in regular political parties occasionally vote, uh, against their party and that's totally fine. Right. Um, you could, uh, I mean, you could enact a good harassment policy in the legislature, like there is currently still not a harassment policy that applies to MLAs in the legislature of Alberta. Um, they've gone to a much more robust version in the UK because they had issues with staff and MLA MPs there, and they've gone to an independent third-party investigator where if you have a problem, you can call an independent third-party um, to address your issues, right? Um, there are lots of little things like that. I mean, there's a book called Turning Parliament Inside Out that was written by Michael Chong and some other MPs that has a lot of great ideas in it. But fundamentally, for me, the problem with politics is that it's inherently hierarchical. It's like, it's power structures. And like, if you have power structures where people hold power over other people, you're always going to get some form of like, bullying. It's like, especially in politics, because people, like you said, get into politics because they care about changing their communities and being a voice for their communities. And so if you have a system where people are told like, okay, you've gone into this to make a change, but actually, no, you can't unless you do all these things that you want us to do first. And then even when you get there, when you get the minister position, you find out that you still really don't have any power to do anything. Um It needs to come from leaders and it needs to come from people. People have to demand more of their elected politicians. Media has to not make such a fuss when elected politicians decide to like and be like, hey, you know, maybe this isn't the way that it should be. You know, I was called naive. I was told I didn't understand how politics works. Like this has to be this way because it's always been this way and you don't understand how it works. Like how dare you deign to suggest that it could be otherwise. and like, the
3: comparison of that, when Todd Lowen said the same things and stepped away from the UCP and was not called naive, was not told that he didn't understand how politics works, was yeah. not given a list of reading, like, that's that's a good example of misogyny in politics. I, I, don't, I
2: don't know. <laughs> um, I think Todd, I like, Todd did like, get a lot of guff for, like, just, I think, like, a lot of the media, like, I should say legacy media reaction to, to Todd Lowen it was similar, um, but it was a bit I different.
1: It the right way. And that Todd did get that same, like I didn't call a press conference, right? And like, let all the media ask me questions because like, I knew I wasn't ready for that. And like, Todd did it on Facebook. Like he like, just went out and like, yeah.
2: but the a lot of the, on the
1: internet
0: and a people lot of the
2: re- don't, the, don't the, like The media reaction with Todd though, I think was like, hey guy, why are you surprised you're kicked out? Don't you know you're not allowed to oppose your leader? Uh, yeah. So I, I don't, yeah. I didn't see the word naive, although maybe it was there. Uh, I don't know if it was used with you, Robin, or not, but I think... All the time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, then yeah. I, I don't recall seeing it with Todd either, but I think it was a, a similar kind of sentiment like, hey, bud, don't you know, like, this is the Canadian political system. You're suppo- you're not supposed to speak out kind of thing.
3: The message was the same, but the tone was very different, I, I would say.
2: Yeah. yeah. Also, also like there, there party, is a difference. So, By the like time...
1: I yeah. like how like the Calgary city council operates, like Calgary city council has issues, but yeah. there's nothing blocking an individual city councilor from doing what they're supposed to do, which is represent their constituents.
2: Yeah. But, they but don't I have just have a
1: party like, pulled into like, you know, their people and a legislature is bigger and there's more MLAs. But I think if we could envision a way to do it without parties, it would be nice.
2: I, I, okay. I just asked it. Well, oh, sorry, if I could just say, this the one thing with the Todd Lowen circumstance, though, he spoke out, I, I think some of the tone may have been, reaction was different because there was already an open rebellion against the leader of the party, whereas Rachel Notley never faced anything vaguely close to this kind of uprising that we saw that came at Kenny. So it, it didn't appear, like, I was surprised when you spoke out, Robin. I was like, wow, girls got balls, wow. But when, uh, when Todd spoke out, I, I think it took a lot of guts, but like it was already part of a kind of a building uh rebellion. So it it didn't I think come as out of left field to a lot of people.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: yeah. I, I'm curious, Robin, if you remember. Um I, I I used the term to describe how you 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 spoke out. Um and, and this is my, my my own personal bias here. Um, but I attended your town hall and I made sure that, that you had right after and I made sure to come up to you and I, I was not I, I was dressing more formal then. Um and the way that I described it, and and I want to hear from Stephanie a sec what what your solutions would be, but the way that I described it is that was the most punk rock thing I've seen in politics uh that I could recall. And we need more of that. But <laughs> that's just my personal bias. Stephanie, I do
1: appreciate that, Nate, like for I always I noticed it's funny that I was like, Oh Nate was in a ska my husband was in a ska band, like back in the day so like yeah I go to a lot of punk shows so I do appreciate that reference certainly
0: well Stephanie is it fixable is there anything that you'd add to to what what these two said
1: am I frozen
3: frozen. can you guys hear and see me I can can
0: hear you but you're definitely frozen
3: fun well I'm glad you can I'm glad you can hear me I I agree I tend to agree with Robin um and in terms of the the solutions that Derek puts forward, I I think there are ways that we could make it better, uh, for sure. Um, But does it fix it? I I think that there's a reason that we went down this slippery slope and got to a point where the power is all centralized in the leader's office. And um, the the answer is going to be decentralizing that. if we can do it through you know some incremental changes um uh, you know I, I think there there will always be a desire to find a way to continue to centralize that power and a way to so it'll be it'd be i think a little bit like whack-a-mole <laughs> if we were to to do the kinds of um changes um that Derek's suggesting, and, and and maybe it is um, a more lasting answer, but I I, I don't know exactly. Um, what I do know is that um, I am a systems change person as well, and I think um, that political parties are are the problem. Ultimately, they are private clubs that determine the course of governance for the country, and I think that in and of itself is problematic. Um, We can look to um, the Northwest Territories for a consensus model of government. Um, Essentially, they operate a lot more like a city council. There's absolutely criticism of that um, model. Um, There's problems with that model as well. But um, at the end of the day, I think, you know, we need to pick our problems. um, And maybe there's ways to solve the problems in in that model that uh, that That are easier, um, one of the biggest criticisms of that model is that it's harder to run without the political party banner. Um, people actually constituents actually have to get to know who you are and what your platform is. Is that a bad thing <laughs> no it's just a hurdle but but I think maybe it's a worthwhile one so I, all of the criticisms that are lodged against a consensus model government I'm like i don't know that i I think that's a problem necessarily so Yeah, I I would like to see systems change, but in the meantime, I'll take changing the nominations process.
1: (laughs) Okay. I do just want to say, like, I would be remiss if I said, like, people don't understand we don't actually have democracy right now. Like, we think we have democracy because we vote for people, but like, there are so many ways that we don't actually have democracy like 40% of people who vote get to elect their person. So that's a problem right there. Like we don't have proportional representation. Secondly, once you elect your person and they're in there, they don't get to make any decisions. They're gonna vote the way that their party is gonna vote. And so all the power is centralized in the leader's office. We could save a ton of money if we just voted for one person to make all the decisions. There's a very capable public service. They do all of the bureaucratic legalistic stuff. Like elect one person, that person can make all the decisions. Like, But people balk at that, they like the idea that you have a functioning democracy with people who represent individual areas, but we don't, we don't have that. So like, unless we actually realize that we don't actually have democracy, and we don't, we don't have democracy, it's like really, really crucial that people understand what we have now. Like, is it better than China? Yeah, but like, it's not really what you think it is.
2: And then the runner up can be the leader of the opposition and they get to ask questions of the one person who's in charge. Yeah. for one day a week on camera,
1: yeah, and that
2: would, frankly, nothing would change, because the one oh. person who's already in charge gets to make all the decisions, the legislature's there to rubber stamp it, and the only thing anyone ever sees from the opposition is maybe question period if you're super dorky, so it's just, whoever wins, they're in charge, they're the president, and then whoever, or, or the premier, or whatever, and whoever's runner-up, they just get to ask them questions once a week on camera, and that'd be the same system, and save yep. a bunch of money. Tonne.
0: I think we're going to break the internet with the fact that Robin Leff and Derek Fildebrandt just redesigned Alberta's uh, democratic situation in agreement. Like, I think that's, I love it. Um, I know that, I think Stephanie's internet also broke. Maybe maybe that was just, <laughs> the, the Robin and Derek agreeing broke, broke the internet in, in Vancouver. Um... Uh, I I know that we have a couple of hard timelines that we're we're running up against, and I don't want to push anybody's schedule, especially because you guys have been so generous with your time. Thank you so much for having this conversation, for being willing to be a part of this conversation. And I think another thing that I just want to highlight before I let you guys go is, as we acknowledged at the beginning, when it comes to a lot of political beliefs, we, we have the extreme ends of the spectrum here. And you guys still showed up for a conversation. And I think that if there's any other big lessons that need to be taken out of that, we have to be willing to have these conversations. We have to be willing to listen to each other. So thank you for providing some, some leadership that I hope some people catch on to with that. And I think we just had Stephanie back for the goodbye. You
1: uh, did it. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. I think people need to talk to each other across the aisle more. Um, I think when we do, we realize that we have more in common than you think, like Derek and I are never going to agree on a lot of things. Um, charter schools, for instance. Um, Love <laughs> but at the same time, we do agree on ways that make democracy that could conceivably make, we care, we both care about democracy. And so if you care about democracy, and you care about representation, you're going to have areas where you agree.
2: Well, I, I, you know, and it just, I, I know we're wrapping up, but you know, in my time there, I was, I think it's very fair to say, uh, amongst the furthest ideologically from the government, even within the opposition, even within the Wild Rose, I was about as polar opposite as it could possibly be. But I was one of the only members of the Wild Rose or the entire opposition period that actually tried to spend any time trying to get to know anyone on the other side of the legislature in the NDP. And you know, I I I got to know Robin a little, not and, and Stephanie a little, not as much as I'd like, but Uh, Others as well, you know, uh, Shay Anderson, I I got, I spent some time in trying to understand them as human beings who I just don't happen to agree with on particularly very much. And, 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 And we really lack that today where, you know, the other side, they're almost, it's almost like war and they're dehumanized. They're just not worth talking to what could possibly, what possible good can come from it. There's a lot of pressure. To stay Party within your own plays tribe. That up. Sorry, what?
1: Party leadership plays that up. Like, yeah. they encourage you not to, because as long as you're fighting an enemy, you're more likely to stay in line.
2: Yeah. And, and so I, I think there's a lot of time when you're not in the legislature physically, when you're in Edmonton or in the House of Commons, when you're in Ottawa. And in those times, you're out for beers with people or out at dinner or, or in your office. And a lot of it's socializing, and people don't socialize across party lines, and it makes us more tribal than we already need to be. And and we just don't think of each other as as understanding that our opponents, while they might be wrong, and I know you two are definitely wrong about everything, um, you're well intentioned. You have you have good intentions, even if I think your good intentions pave the road to hell. <laughs>
0: there's there's the Derek Feldbrand I was waiting for. <laughs> <laughs>
3: is there bloody delivered
0: (laughs) 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 thank you thank you all again so much um i really appreciate you taking the time uh and i i i know i learned a lot in the conversation uh and i hope that that people do listen to the whole thing because i think you all made some really important points my pleasure
3: thanks Thanks for
0: the opportunity yeah thank you as always, if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here at The Breakdown, we would love it if you swung by our Patreon page at www.patreon.com TheBreakdownAB and signed up for a small monthly sponsorship of the work that we're trying to do here. It is because of the support that we receive from our Patreon sponsors that we're able to continually up our game and it is tremendously appreciated. So I want to throw a big thank you out to them and you can go ahead And visit that website and join and support us as well because we need all the help we can get. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of these important conversations. And we will see you next time on The Breakdown.